for animal welfare. We've got another great show for you on the way, so put your paws up, sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Welcome to Animals Voice Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin McKenzie, and so honored and thrilled to be joined right now by Dr. Temple Grandin. Great to be here. Thank you so much for giving us some time. Temple Grandin was diagnosed with autism as a child and went on to pursue work in psychology and animal science. You've written books and provided consultation on the humane treatment of animals, and you've become a leading advocate for autistic communities. We have you here at the conference that we do once a year, and I sat and listened to your session this morning and just riveting, hearing your take on the way animals think and your belief on that and comparing it to some degree, and that's actually my first question is, when did you first learn you had the same ways of thinking as animals? Well, when I was a teenager, I thought everybody thought in pictures the same way I did. I didn't know that my thinking was different. I actually got greater insight as I learned how most people think much more in words. Now, some of my early work with cattle, the first thing I did is I noticed they were going through a handling facility to feed yard, and they'd stop at a hose on the ground, a shadow, a coat on a fence, a chain hanging down. And other people hadn't even thought to look at those little distractions that the animals see. Now, it was obvious to me to look at what animals see. Okay. And the thing I didn't know at the time that I did this is that other people didn't, did not have the amount of visual thinking that I had. Visual thinking is a continuum. Just about everybody can visualize their own home or their own car. So if I ask you something they're not so familiar with, let's say church steeples, okay. I was shocked to find out that some people just go pointy thing like this. I have no pointy thing. I just see specific ones. A specific one. That's right. Wow. Okay. Well, and then I can kind of like uh, flick through them like a set of slides. Wow. We have one in Fort Collins. It's a giant stainless steel cross. Okay. And so is that, so that, for example, when you're telling me that anecdote, is that the one you're visualizing yeah, right now? Yeah, that's one of the ones I've visualized. I'm also visualizing some of the ones that are on my slides now. Okay. So at a young age, you realized that you thought the same way as animals think and see things. How did that knowledge impact you at the time? Well, when I was, again, when I was young, I thought everybody thought You just pictures. thought that was I what? I thought everybody thought in pictures. Mm-hmm. And then I started getting insight when I started doing my book, Thinking in Pictures, back in 1996. I started questioning people about how they think. Okay. And when I started asking people about the church steeples, then I found out the differences in thinking. Mistake I'd made in the past is think about your own home. Just about everybody can visualize their own home. Mm-hmm. If I ask you something more abstract, factory or a telephone pole or something like that, people tend to get a more vague image. Okay. Now, you have autism, and that, you believe, lends you the ability to really have a strong connection and bond with animals. Is that, is that accurate to say? Well, basically, my cognitive style is more like how an animal is. I tell people working with animals, you've got to get away from words. Now, autism, you tend to have, you know, not be socially awkward. Yeah. Where animal mind is similar to autism, it's on the cognition, okay. not on the emotions. I want to really differentiate between the cognition and the emotion. Also, I want to remind everybody that I am a professor of animal science at Colorado State University, and that is one of my most important identities. Absolutely. I, the problem we've got now today with the whole autism diagnosis is it's going from Einstein with no language to age three, Steve Jobs, half a Silicon Valley, some little math genius, down to somebody who cannot dress themselves. Okay. And I get real concerned 
especially on these smart kids that get labeled autism, almost get held back by it. Okay. Because I'm seeing them getting more fixated on autism than on something like animals. Okay. Another question I get asked all the time is how did I get interested in animals? That was exactly what I was about to ask you. When I was in high school, they had horses. They had a dairy. I went to my aunt's ranch when I was 15. This brings up another really important thing on a career path. Kids get interested in things they get exposed to. Okay. And I was exposed to animals, both horses and cattle, as a teenager. Wow. All right. What inspired you to want to share your knowledge of animals' emotions and needs to help create systems that improve animal welfare on farms specifically? When I first started out, I found the only way I could sell anybody anything was strictly on economics. you got to remember, early 70s. Okay. Early 70s, I would tell them I could reduce bruises. I could, redu- I could reduce labor. I could reduce accidents things of this sort. I had to sell it strictly on economics. These other things most people weren't interested in. Okay. You gotta remember, there was the bad old days. Okay. And the worst of the bad old days was the 80s and the early 90s. Really? I did a lot of work with the meatpacking plants. They were absolutely awful in the 80s and the 90s. And they've gotten so much better today. I have a video online called Beef Plant Video Tour with Temple Grandin, Pork Plant Video Tour. Um, things are not perfect today. But they're so much better than the bad old days. There's just no comparison. You must feel good about having played a, a significant role in those changes well, and improvements. Uh, kind of looking at my career over 40 years, when I was young, in my 20s and 30s, I thought I could fix everything with engineering. Everything could be solved with engineering. Well, I learned that that's not possible. The other end of the equation is management. So then I started training employees and managers that untrain them. So then I started training managers, because if managers don't buy into it, nothing happens. But then the biggest change happened when I worked for McDonald's and Wendy's Corporation, when you got a big customer with all that buying power, Mm -hmm. getting behind doing things better. That's when there was real changes. And then I developed a very simple way to assess animal welfare at a slaughter plant, five scores. Percent stunned on the first shot. Mm -hmm. Percent rendered insensible, that's to be 100%. Okay. No more than 1% falling, no more than 3% mooing in the um, Bellerin in the stun box and getting the prod, electric prod score down really low. Okay. Five numbers they had to make, which are outcome variables. Worked really, really well. Okay. We were not telling a plant how to build a plant. Sure. They had to achieve certain outcomes that were measurable. And out of 75 McDonald's suppliers down in the U.S., only three had to build something expensive. Really? Okay. And everybody else we fixed with maintenance, Oh, stunners, captive bolt stunners, it's all about maintenance. It, today, it's still all about maintenance. Have you had... Non-slip pl- flooring. No. Non-slip flooring. Lots of plants had slippery floors. We went and put non-slip flooring in the unloading area, stun box floor. There's a lot of simple changes. Right. I find today, we still have to keep talking about basics. Okay. You know, there's been some activist video that came out, and they were doing some rough handling of pigs, and they were trying to take nine large market hogs at a time, put them on the liner... No, it's three to five you take at a time. Okay. Small groups, mm-hmm. moving small groups of animals. I've talked about that for years. Well, that's a basic that's been talked about for 30 years. Right, right. And you still have to supervise people. You take three to five pigs at a time, not nine. When you're working with farms and you suggest new techniques to them, what kind of response have you had? Is it always accepted or do you face a lot of pushback? I found that selling equipment's easy. Oh, yeah? People always want the magic thing. <laughs> Getting people to operate it correctly, that's what was so frustrating. Mm-hmm. You know, before the McDonald's and Wendy's audit started in 99 and 2000, half my clients just tore up everything and wrecked it. It was so frustrating. 
getting people to do things right. Now, what kept me going ever since the very beginning is 10 to 20% of the people I worked with were good. Okay. And they stayed good. So that was sort of like seeing a glimpse of sunshine through the clouds. Sure. I knew there was a light at the end of the tunnel because even back in the bad old days, there were some people that did a good job. And that's what's kept me going. Okay. Now today, the percentage of people that are doing a good job is greatly expanded. Okay, that's good here. You are listening to Animal's Voice Podcast. We'll be right back with Dr. Temple Grandin after this break. Did you know that even a few minutes in a hot vehicle could be deadly to your pets? Dogs have a limited ability to sweat. On summer days, the air and upholstery in your vehicle can heat up to high temperatures that make it impossible for pets to cool themselves. Please keep your pets safe. If you can't take them with you when you leave your car, then leave them at home where they are safe. Visit nohotpets.ca. Join the Ontario SPCA and pledge not to leave your pets in your vehicle. If you witness an animal in a vehicle, please contact the Ontario SPCA or your local Humane Society. Society at 310 SPCA or the local police services. We are back with Dr. Temple Grandin. Dr. Grandin was diagnosed with autism as a child and went on to pursue work in psychology and animal science. How can farmers resist becoming desensitized to the needs of the animals that they care for? One of the things you've got to be careful when you have huge amounts of animals, understaffing and overworking. You have to make sure you don't work people into the ground with so tired they don't care mm-hmm. on really big farms. Another thing that you can do to help prevent people from getting desensitized is divide it up into sections. So this pig building belongs to Joe, and this one over here belongs to Jose, so that each employee sort of has ownership of a piece of that farm they can put their head around. Okay. And then those are their pigs Mm -hmm. or their chickens or whatever it is. Dr. Grandin, how can we all become more sensitive to what our animals are telling us? You ask me a lot of very abstract questions. And when I think visually, it's not abstract. I find so many times on troubleshooting behavior problems, it's all too abstract. They'll say something, well, my dog's crazy, or or, did this, or did that, Mm -hmm. and I don't have enough information to even begin to figure out what the problem with the animal is. Okay. You gotta ask a lot of uh, more questions. Mm So that's the importance then, is asking a lot of questions. Especially in trying to figure out behavior problems. Okay, I got a question about, you have uh, dogs that are kind of feral that are up on the Indian uh, reserves, mm-hmm. and uh, somebody adopted one of them and it killed a cat. Well, in their environment, cats are prey, so maybe the best thing to do with those dogs is if the home has a cat, they don't go there. Okay. That might be a real simple way to deal with that problem. Mm-hmm. Because to train the dog not to chase cats is probably going to involve aversive so okay. it needs to be in a cat free environment sure that makes and that is probably going to be fine yeah that'd be the sensible thing to do it should be fine with other animals because it's been socialized to other dogs okay can you tell our listeners you know what is the importance of listening to our pets as well as livestock animals i don't really know what you mean by that i you know, I, I like to answer things that are much more specific than that okay okay that's you that's see this fair. is the thing thinking in words the tendency to really overgeneralize. And one of the big problems we got a lot, you know, with our government and other governments is what I call abstractification. Mm-hmm. You see, in your organization, you have hands-on work you do with animals. Sure. And there was a wonderful talk last night uh, that really illustrated that. But you have people making policy now where they've never had any hands-on experience with anything. Okay. They don't cook, sew, woodwork, or do any, any hands-on things. And then the abstractification tends to get worse. Okay. 
You know, I have uh, young students will come to me and they'll say, I'm interested in social justice or something like that, or I'm interested in helping animals. Well, let's uh, pick out some niche where you can put your head around something where you actually can make a change. In the work that I did, I started out designing things that were installed in feed yards, mm -hmm. mainly selling people equipment. Then when I did the McDonald's audits, I bent over backwards not to sell equipment because I had a conflict of interest, and I tried to fix all the plants with real simple things, but it really got into the management side of it. Okay. McDonald's audits forced people to manage their stuff. Okay. You know what the number one problem was with captive bolt stunning a cattle? Broken equipment. Really? Broken equipment. And even today, you still have to have, you know, get after maintenance, maintenance, maintenance. It what? isn't buying some magic new thing. They just got to repair the stuff and maintain the stuff they've got. Okay. Well, this is fascinating. This, this entire discussion is eye-opening for me. You know, you got an animal shoulders. You know, people come to me and say, oh, I'm going to design the animal shoulder of the wonderfulness. Well, I think one of the single most important thing you can do for dogs that are in an animal shelter, especially long term, have a volunteer come in, take each dog out every day for an hour of funsies with people. Yeah. And that's going to lower stress. In okay. fact, I had a student, Krista Coplo, who did a paper and she um, measured their salivary cortisols on dogs that got an hour of play versus ones that were just uh, put in the kennel the regular way, mm -hmm. and the uh, salivary cortisols were lower. But unfortunately, they went right back up because they didn't, that was, the program was not continued. Okay. That's the most important thing you can do for those dogs. So if I had a choice, I'd rather have chain link old fashioned, but a great volunteer program taking every dog out, or the state of the art shelter in my volunteer program is horrible. I'll take the chain link with the um, good volunteer program any day. Okay. Facilities have to be at least adequate. You know, they can't be just broken down and all falling apart. They gotta be at least at an adequate level. Okay. Once they're at the adequate level, your single most important thing is your management. Okay. Now obviously, if I was building a new shelter, I'm not gonna copy some old chain link piece of garbage. Sure. I wanna build something nice, mm -hmm. obviously, mm -hmm. for a new shelter. So building something nice is great, but- Oh, building something nice is great. But the management it, it of it- helps staff morale to have a nice facility. Yeah, mm -hmm. there's a lot of reasons for building something nice. I'm not gonna, no, I don't wanna duplicate badly designed things. No, no, of course not. In closing, all of our listeners have pets for the most part or love pets. What kind of things can our listeners with pets learn from their pet's behavior? Well, I'm concerned about a lot of dogs not getting socialized. Yeah. When I was a child, all the dogs ran loose. It was mainly labs and uh, golden retrievers. There was one family had an Airedale that was locked up in the house all day, and that dog was nuts. I was terrified of that dog as a kid. It would fling itself against the front door, and she was so jumpy and full of energy. Uh, but the other dogs ran around the neighborhood and they all socialized with each other and we did not have behavior problems. Mm -hmm. We did not have separation anxiety where a dog chewed up the whole house. Puppies chewed things and that was it because the dogs were out socializing with the other dogs. And if a dog bit somebody, parents would go, what did you do to it? You know, today, I think the leash laws are actually making some of the behavior problems worse. Really? Because in order for your dog to um, socialized with other dogs, you gotta take it down to the dog park. That's a whole bunch of work. Yeah. The dogs don't really have a dog's life anymore. Okay. Another big concern I have is people breeding animals deliberately for a whole bunch of aggressive traits. Mm, yeah. That was something that was not being done in the past. Before. We got drug dealers and people like that, you know, really creating some you know, horrendous uh, dogs from a genetic standpoint. Mm -hmm. You know, deliberately, you know, combining aggressive traits in different breeds. Have you seen examples? Uh, I'm actually, I'm prompting you with this because I heard you bring an example of that up. 
during your presentation earlier. I think you mentioned two different breeds where you had seen them combined. Well, yeah, and the Akitas and Pit Bulls together yeah. is a real mess. Yeah. Because the Pit Bulls prey drive. I mean, it was originally uh, bred to be nice towards people mm -hmm. and aggressive, dog aggressive. Akitas are territorial. Okay. They'll guard their territory. So you put that together, now you've got two aggressive traits okay. in the same animal where before you had one aggressive trait in each animal. So that animal will have a shorter fuse when it comes to aggression. Well, you've got two different kinds of aggression. Now you've got the prey drive, and then you say the nice towards people. You make it more territorial, and that's probably not going to be as nice towards people. Oh, okay. You're deliberately breeding dogs to be really aggressive. Mm -hmm. And we've got some gangsters and some uh, drug dealers that are doing that sort of stuff. And some of these dogs are just not safe. Nobody back in the 50s and 60s when all the dogs ran loose were breeding anything like that. Nobody was doing anything like that. No. Well, I appreciate you spending a few minutes with us here today and appreciate you coming to our conference. Dr. Temple Grandin, Professor of Animal Science at Colorado State University. Thank you so much for joining me on Animal's Voice podcast yeah, today. It was great to be here. Thank you. Thank you, listeners of Animal's Voice. Until next time, we'll catch you later. Thank you for joining us for another edition of Animals Voice Podcast. Don't forget to check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and at our website, ontariospca.ca. Animals Voice Podcast is a production of the Ontario SPCA. The Society would like to thank all of our supporters. Together, we are the Animals Voice.